Welcome to the Business with Beers podcast. This is the place where we help entrepreneurs turn their business income into passive income. I'm your host, Brian Beers, an entrepreneur on a mission to inspire growth from everyone around me. I'm going to show you how to create generational wealth by growing your business and breaking the chains of Wall Street investing. Remember, you need to take the actions others won't to live the life that others don't. This week, I've got Dave Menz, also known as the Laundromat Millionaire on the podcast. In this episode, Dave shares his story on how he came from nothing to now owning multiple locations that do millions of dollars in sales. You know, Dave shares some great tips on what makes a great location for a laundromat. How do you value them? How can you, how much profit can you expect? How can you finance equipment? All that actionable tips. You know, Dave has done a great job in pivoting from someone who works a ton of hours in his business to now he focuses all of his time working on his business. And he's just written a book that comes out in a few months called The Laundry Not Millionaire. And he's hyper-focused on helping other business owners improve their operations or get into the laundromat business. This is a great episode. It will definitely open your mind to the opportunities that exist. And before we dive in the show, I would really appreciate it if you take two seconds to tap that five-star review button on Apple Podcasts, and even better, leave me a quick review. All right, let's get started. Hey, well, welcome to the show, Dave. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, and as we were talking earlier, I heard you on the Bigger Pockets podcast back in, I think it was May of 2020. So uh, mm-hmm. almost uh, a year and a half uh, earlier. And I had reached out on Facebook. We had a conversation about laundromat business. And I thought it'd be awesome to kind of get you on the show and uh, share to, to my audience your story and how, how awesome the the laundromat business could be. So to start, if, if you could, could you give us kind of like your journey from maybe 18 years old to kind of where you are now and kind of how you got into the the laundromat business? Yeah, when I was 18 years old, I... I you know, wasn't very good at school. And so I graduated from high school, just barely, and uh, tried community college for a while. Definitely wasn't my thing. Got an entry-level job at the local telephone company and uh, and went off into the wild, wild west of corporate America. Um, even though I always wanted to own my own business, that was the path that I took. And uh, I, was, I worked in corporate America for 17 years total, uh, about 12 years into it. I had been promoted several times. I was kind of living the middle-class dream, if you will. I uh, was married, had three young kids and the whole nine yards and just realized that I was meant to be an entrepreneur and I wasn't following, uh, you know, my heart, my, my passion. And uh, so I decided to do something about it after about 12 years in corporate America. And for the next five years, me and my wife lived well below our means, saved up uh, some seed money. And uh, about four, 13 years into that journey, uh, we bought a local laundromat a couple miles from our house for sale. And uh, it was just kind of totally on a whim. I mean, I've always studied business. I felt like I knew business pretty well at that point, but I didn't know obviously this industry at all. And so I was just kind of winging it. I mean, it was kind of a side hustle for a while. I uh, worked a full-time job, climbing telephone poles during the day, fixing the phone lines and things like that. And then every morning before work and every uh, evening after work, I would spend at my local dumpy laundromats that I bought um, that was losing money when I bought it. And uh, just trying to fix them up, put some sweat equity in it, a little bit of money that we had because we didn't have a lot, uh, just trying to fix it up and make it better. And my my philosophy for everything I do in life is just to try to be better tomorrow than I was yesterday. So I wasn't really chasing anything or anyone other than just a, just trying to build my business up and eventually get it to break, <laughs> break even. <laughs> yeah. Me. Break even was the goal. the goal. Yep. Yeah. And then obviously eventually profitability. 
And uh, we were able to do that about seven or eight months into that first store. And I kind of, what I say, caught the laundromat bug. I kind of, not overnight, but started to figure out the business. And I realized, wow, there is something really powerful here. And uh, when I bought the laundromat, I just thought it would be like a little side hustle. I didn't think I'd ever be able to like leave my full-time job. And as I kind of started to evolve and network and meet other people and learn the business, I realized there's something here. And if I can get a couple of these, I could probably leave my full-time job. And that was kind of that first like aha moment okay. of like where I could be a full-time entrepreneur. All right. And how, uh, and how long ago, what year did you buy that, that first one? Uh, we bought our first one in 2010. Okay. 2010. And um, how much did you buy for? Uh, 85,000. Okay. And that, that was just the kind of the, the business and, and then all the, all the equipment side of it, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Infrastructure, customer base. Yeah. Okay. It was losing, it was losing money, but I mean, it had revenue coming in. It just wasn't very well run. And how much was it losing at that time a, a month or, you know, roughly? I don't remember for sure. I know our gross revenue was like 1300 a week, um, which, you know, laundromats don't generate a ton of revenue. Uh, it was, it was probably losing two or $300 a week. So thousand, fifteen hundred dollars a month, something like that. Okay. And our first thing was like, all right, we just got to get this thing. Like we yeah. got to, we got to yeah, yeah. put our thumbs in the, in the holes. Okay. Uh, so it took you seven, eight months to, to get that to get that, like you said, breaking even. And then uh, walk us through there. So you got this first thing, it's starting to now to make some money. You're starting to kind of figure out, you know, what are the the lever levels you can pull and, and how can you make it, you know, more desirable, um, you know, service for your customers. And then, and then what'd you do from there? Yeah. Wouldn't we, first of all, the reason we bought the business is because while I didn't know a ton about laundromats, I felt like I knew a decent amount about business. And so when I was in my kind of due diligence period, I did two things that I didn't know at the time were smart. They were just instinctual. Uh, One of them was I found a great mentor. I found a local equipment distributor in the Cincinnati area where I live. And I reached out to him and built a relationship with him. And he gave me a lot of coaching and mentorship and frankly, encouragement um, along the way. The second thing I did before we closed on it is I just knew that the, like the laws of supply and demand are very real. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I wonder what the other competitors are like. Uh, Because this place was in bad shape, but I knew I would fix it up and make it nice. And I thought, you know, maybe wonder wonder if this market's already overpenetrated with well-run laundromats. So I researched all the competitors within like a 20-mile radius. There was nine of them. And uh, come to find out all nine of them were in as bad a shape, if not worse, than this one. And so really those two things, I was just like, that's enough for me. I don't really need to know any more than that. Uh, I got a mentor that can help me figure this out because I do, I'd, I do the work um, and I know that there's a, there's a need. Um, they say in, in supply and demand, you're just looking for pain points. You know, you're looking for people that are in pain, meaning they're not being served properly. Yep. They have a need that's not being met. And for me, that was it. And from there, it was just a lot of sweat equity, a lot of reinvesting um, of our money, things like that. I might've misspoke a minute ago. It didn't take us seven months to get to break even. We got to break even almost immediately within mm. three or four weeks. Uh, by month seven, we were actually profitable. We were, we were probably, uh, we were probably netting a couple thousand a month and that's after debt servicing. Okay. Cause at that point we had borrowed quite a bit of money too. Mm-hmm. So if you back the debt servicing out, which is properly how you do it, uh, you know, we were probably making more like 4,000 a month within okay. seven months. Okay. Uh, so we were pretty happy with that. that that's yeah. kind of what I caught that bug I told you about. Okay. Great. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, and then walk us from there. So that's 2010, 20, mm-hmm. by 2011, within a year, it's, it's things cranking out four or five grand a month of, of cash flow if you paid all your mm-hmm. debt, you know, um, and, and all the expenses. So what happened then? 
Yeah. One of the things that I learned in my studies of business is that um, most people that start from very little, which is where I was starting Mm -hmm. um, and grow, you know, tremendous wealth over time. One of the ways that they do that, uh, that's pretty consistent across the board um, is they practice delayed gratification. Mm. I call it keeping your hand out of cookie jar. Same thing. Um, (laughs) That's my little, my little mensism as you will, if you will. Um, but yeah, so, so me and my wife, we had a couple things, foundational things going for us. And I said, man, if we can do this in like seven, 12 months, imagine what we could do if we get a couple of these and we just keep our hand out of the cookie jar. And so we never touched that money. We just kept our full-time job. She was a career school teacher. Um, we just worked on growing our income, all the business money that the business made, we just used to pay off the debt and we saved some up because we wanted to get another location. And within about 11 months of buying that first store, we actually acquired our second location. Um, it just so happened to work out that I had a, I had a full-time job and uh, my commute was about an hour commute north of Cincinnati uh, from where I lived. And I found this local rundown laundromat that was actually closed. It was in a shopping center. And uh, I approached the property owner and I said, hey, you got this kind of rundown dumpy laundromat in your shopping center. They kind of, <coughs> excuse me. I didn't say it this way, but they kind of had an albatross on their hands and I knew it. And I said, you know, I'm in the business. This is what I do. I take over old rundown lumpy, dumpy laundromats and fix them up and make them nice. And, uh, and I said, you know, basically if you, if you sign me to a long-term lease, I'll come in and basically fix up the space and make it a viable business and you can collect rent checks. And, uh, so we negotiated on, you know, terms and TI money and all these different things and, and, uh, worked out a deal that was a win-win for both of us. And, um, I would say probably right around the 12 month mark, we actually okay. uh, remodeled that second store, opened it up. And within three weeks, it was profitable, even though it was very highly leveraged. Uh, but this store was about 20 minutes north of my other store. And it mm. was right off the highway, off the exit and on my way to work. And so I thought, well, man, for a guy with three young kids at home and a wife with a career, and I have my own career and I have this other business that I just bought a year ago. Like I'm, I'm, I'm maxing myself out yeah. here. I'm working 90 to hundred hours a week, yeah. uh, most weeks. And I thought, well, if nothing else, this is on my way to work and on my way home. And it was in the, it was one of those nine that I described to you. That was also a, a mess. And so I knew the laws of supply and demand were tipped in my favor, but it was far enough away from my other store that it, you know, it was, it was a separate, what they call submarket. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was kind of my second foray into business. I actually, I tell people nowadays I got the business for free because I didn't technically pay anything for it. Yeah. Of course, I borrowed a whole bunch of money and put them into the store. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, it's, uh, it's didn't acquire of, anything. It was the power of compounding, right? It's, yeah. Is that in business is that you take all your business profits instead of going buying a, a new car or something. Right. You're, you're taking that profit and you're, you're reinvesting it into buy more. I mean, we've done the same thing in our, our stores and I've grown, you know, our business from six locations to over, you know, 2024 now by the time this launches and it's, almost every single one was acquired from money that we generated from the, the previous <clears throat> deal. And it just, it starts to compound and spiral. And that's like, that's how you grow wealth uh, yep. very quickly is the power of compounding and not, not like you said, taking it out and buying cookies and fun stuff with it. So, uh, so, uh, yeah, so the, fast, longer you, the longer you delay that gratification, the, the more powerful it becomes. Yep. So fast forward today, how, how many locations do you have today? Yeah. So right now we're building our fifth location. Uh, we've, we've evolved from, uh, you know, working a full-time job. Now I work full-time in my business. I've grown a team of about 40 employees that run all my stores. Now we have store managers, general managers, things like that in place. And so now I tell people, you know, there's a, there's a big misconception in the laundromat industry that this is a passive business. 
And it's not, it's just not true. Um, It's very misrepresented in that way, but I'm a passive business owner. And what I mean by that is somebody has to run this business. It does not run itself. That's not how this works, but I don't run the business. I own the business and I have a a staff of people that I've built up over a 12 year period of time that run and manage the businesses for me. And obviously they check in with me and I poke in from every once in a while. Uh, But that's allowed me to kind of foray into teaching other people how to be successful in business too, which is something I spend a lot of time on now. And, and in this year, in 2022, what do you expect in, in terms of revenue, the five laundromats to be to produce? Well, one of them isn't open yet. Okay. Um, so I guess technically we have four on the books. Uh, between our four stores right now um, and our laundry pickup and delivery service, we'll do a little over $2 million in gross revenue. Okay. And luckily, all, there's a couple different revenue streams in there, some vertical integration with pickup and delivery and things like that, some drop-off laundry service yep. that we do within the stores. Um, but yeah, pretty much all those revenue streams fall right in line with about a 30 to 35% margin. Okay. Uh, yeah. So let's walk through like the, the financial model, like of, mm-hmm. of you see, you know, this empty laundromat, how do you go about determining what's the valuation and what's some capital improvements, you know, that at the end of the day, how much should this thing be able to produce, you know, do you need payroll? And then ultimately what's the net to you kind of as the owner, as you, as you kind of walk through, kind of give me some, some bar napkin math you know, kind mm-hmm. of a uh, high level stuff here, but let's walk through that. You, you, you're driving down the street somewhere in, in Ohio. It fits your market. Um, let's start with the valuation. How do you determine what you're going to pay for a place? Well, I mean, if it's an open key, you know, turnkey store, that's mm-hmm. not in a terrible state of disrepair, like mine were and things like that. As a general rule, the, the valuation of a laundromat is typically anywhere from two to six of NOI. So whatever the net operating income of yep. the business is, two to six. And people say, well, that's a huge range. And it yep. is. It depends on the condition of the business, the age of the equipment, because every washer and dryer in your store is an employee. Like it's, yep. <laughs> you yes. don't have a lot of employees. Uh, so if it's are, relatively old, right? If they're if it's 25 year life or 20 year life equipment, they're all near the end. You're probably going to pay a low multiple than if it was all brand new or, or you know, in pretty good that's condition, right. right? Yep. Um, the general rule. That's right. Okay. So you're looking at the operating income two, two to six times. I mean, that's, um, you know, I think that's pretty standard in a lot of other small mm-hmm. businesses. And then what do you, what do you do from there for capital improvements? What of, you know, is, is there a certain model that you try to follow to differentiate you know, your locations from others, or is it, is it, are they all kind of the same? Well, the good thing about the laundromat industry is that the bar is really, really low. Um, I estimate, and this is just kind of, you know, once again, back of the napkin, but I estimate roughly uh, 80, 85% of the laundromats in the United States of America are just awful. I mean, they're just in terrible state of disrepair. Um, so the good news is, Owners that yeah, don't I care, mean, like yeah. think it's. I mean, a lot of them. A lot of them are run unattended, um, which you can run a well-run unattended laundromat, meaning there's not a staff on duty at all times. Mm-hmm. It's that's where the that's where the idea of this passive income mm-hmm. comes from. Okay, it's, yeah. it's just a room of washers and dryers. Nobody's there. It just runs itself. Well, in theory, that's true for like five minutes until something breaks or something happens or a homeless guy sets up camp or I mean, <laughs> there's a there's a lot to the business. Um, that the that the owner typically does in an unattended model, uh, but there's a couple different models within the industry. The unattended model is one of them, and I always call that more of a commodity mindset, meaning 
Those two owners, generally speaking, aren't focused on customer service. Um, they're usually more focused on uh, just the commoditization of the utilities and the equipment and the retail space, the rent, things like that. Okay. Um, and don't get me wrong, that can be done well. So I'm not disparaging that model. That's how I started. That's what I bought. But my model is the rundown, dumpy laundromat that's in terrible shape of disrepair, but is in a great location, has great parking, and has limited competition, meaning the laws of supply and demand are tipped in my favor. And the beauty of the laundromat industry is if you hit those things, those nails on a head, you don't need to go any further because you have, a, again? you have a home run on your great, head. great parking, a great location, great oh, location yeah. as far as visibility. Yep. Um, good demographics and limited comp- competition. Yep. Yeah. So what a lot of people do that come to our industry from other industries is they like to like kind of, I call it spreadsheet it. Mm-hmm. They really want to, they want to take this engineering mindset and kind of drill down on like all the data and let the data tell me what's good and bad. Okay. And the and you can do that. I'm not saying you can't, but what I tell people is evaluating an existing laundromat location is much more of an art than a science. Mm-hmm. Um, but the math does matter. I'm not saying it doesn't, but because so many are in bad shape, the, the two to six X of net operating income I mean, if the place is awful or if it's losing money or it has 40-year-old equipment that had a 20-year life cycle, it's not worth anything. You know what I mean? So, I mean, you're really not going to pay much, if anything, for it. Um, If it's a great location, you'll pay a little something for the location. You'll pay a little something for the infrastructure, which is very valuable. And that's kind of what I bought day one. And that's what I've continued to buy. Um, Yeah, if that makes sense. Yep. So then I guess the amount of money you have to put into a very... It can vary, right? Greatly depending on the, the condition. It could be probably as what's on the the low end of money you'd have to put in versus kind of a, a higher end uh, one. Well, if you're building a new laundromat, I mean, to build a brand new laundromat in like a white box retail space that never has been a laundromat, I mean, you're probably looking at two fifty to three hundred thousand dollars, and that's more of a laundry room than a laundry mat. It's pretty small. That being said, there's three, four million dollar laundromats out there that are that are just gorgeous facilities, Taj Mahal of everything, and sure, yeah. um, you know, huge facilities and things like that, and everything in between. So it kind of depends. It also depends on what you're acquiring. Like my my first store, for example, I paid eighty five for it. I basically paid for the location and the limited customer base. That's pretty much what I paid for. There was very little value in the equipment, although I did get some of it to work for us for a while. Um, but over the next couple of years, we probably invested $300,000 in, in little little chunk projects yeah. along the way okay. uh, to get the business to where it eventually was, where it was uh, generating a good amount of money. The beauty of the laundromat business is, although it's capital intensive, you can you can typically with the equipment, the vending, the folding tables, you know, things like that. Um, you can typically borrow and leverage 100% in most cases. Oh, wow. um, you can't, can't leverage 100% to buy a location. Uh, the acquisition is kind of a different scenario, but the actual equipment, you can do that pretty easily. And the reason why is if you take a rundown dumpy laundromat and you put all new equipment in it and you put a new new floor in and redo the to retile the bathrooms, once again, if you have the right location and you have very limited competition, the industry knows that the odds of anyone else in your area operating at even a mediocre level are pretty slim. Mm -hmm. And so you have to have a business plan. I mean, you got to kind of justify it, but it's really not rocket science because there's, there's so many great locations that are in, in just such bad shape that the industry knows the bar is just really low. Okay. 
All right. So we got this. We, we've improved, you know, done the capital improvements. So on average, or is it, I don't know if it's square foot. I know obviously Taj Mahal, but like, you know, what's a good sales target? What are you, what are you looking to see? And then what's, what's the margin that you're, you're able to pull out of the business once you pay everybody? Yeah. I mean, for us, it's been an evolution because what we did for the first five or six years, we took everything the business made and reinvested it back in it. Sure. Um, That's kind of how we got to where we are now. That being said, once you get to where we are now, you can, you can expect, and keep in mind, this is if you're operating at the top of the industry. Yep. Um, Most laundromats are not operated at the top of the industry, but if you're, if you're operating a turnkey location with great management in place and staffing and things like that, uh, you can expect, like I mentioned earlier, about a 30 to 40% um, net operating income um, on a monthly basis. On, and on about 10,000 a week in sales, roughly? Uh, it varies. I mean, a small laundromat that's in the country, like in a small town of five, 10,000 people, it might only do a couple thousand dollars a week. Um, a two or $3 million laundromat in the heart of Philly, I mean, it could do 30,000 a week. Um, mm. and, and sometimes more, um, it also depends on their business model, because if they're only a self-serve laundromat, um, you can only do so much business running through people using their own labor. Um, one of the things that we've kind of tweaked and pivoted our business model is we evolved from just a self-serve laundromat to what I now call a full service laundry center. Mm. And so we have a pickup and delivery business where we have delivery drivers and trucks that go out during the day and they pick up laundry from people's homes and businesses all throughout the greater Cincinnati area. They're out during the day, picking up the laundry and dropping it off from the day before. And then they bring it back to the store. And then we check everything in and we process everything. And then the physical laundry that we're doing, we have a third shift production crew that comes in at 10 o'clock at night when the store is closing to the public. It's no longer a self-serve laundromat. And we basically access all that excess capacity in our equipment that would have just sat there and made us no money overnight. And we basically turn our laundromat into a factory overnight. And so we actually generate more revenue when the store is closed to the public than we do during the day. Wow. Um, and that's kind of the sweet spot in any business. I mean, if you find a restaurant that does breakfast and lunch and they can have somebody that owns a food truck and they come in and use their restaurant facility in the evening, um, that's, that's when you really, whenever in business, anytime you can tap into excess capacity, um, that's kind of wasted. Um, that's usually where you'll find your profitability will kind of skyrocket. And that wasn't an easy thing to do. I don't want to make it think that no, it was just no. like buy, this is buy logistics trucks. and technology. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, it's a whole, right. but, but you've, you've taken this, you know, a large capital expense, like the rent needs to be paid, the insurance, you got to pay right. debt, you got to pay everything. And you had to get those things cranking 24 seven. I mean, that, I mean, that seems what's a great differentiator in terms of the business model. Um, yeah, it is. And part of the reason that I've kind of gotten, like I wrote my book, Learner Mount Millionaire and my podcast and different things like that. Part of the reasons I'm kind of getting that recognition is because I, w- I, along with a couple other people in the industry, were kind of the first ones to sort of what I call crack the code. A lot of people have ideas, but execution is really mm-hmm. hard. <laughs> and it took us a couple of years. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't easy. We lost a lot of money. Uh, for the first couple of years. But once you kind of crack that code, uh, as you mentioned, your rent doesn't go up. Yep. Um, so all those and things are fixed expenses. And, and is there a direct correlation to you add? So someone's currently self-serve, they have no employees. It's like, you know, keyless, whatever. And, mm-hmm. and then they, they hire the employee, they start offering, like, I guess, wash and fold services, maybe mm-hmm. drop off pickup to a degree. Is there like a direct correlation to you? You have this increased payroll cost that you're going to more than cover their costs and get you know, that becomes a profit center or is that, is that a harder transition? Like, 
Well, uh, um, as a general rule, there's absolutely a direct correlation. I will throw in the caveat that it depends if you're good on managing people mm-hmm. because everybody likes to think, oh, I just hire Susie homeless lady, pay her minimum wage to give her yeah. a rag and a spray bottle and say, keep the place clean. And they call that managing an employee, um, which is obviously not how this works. Um, you know, people need to be managed, even entry-level employees, um, even management and layers of management. They need to be managed. They need to be coached. They need to be encouraged. Culture is important. Anytime you're building a team, it's important that you know what you're doing. That being said, if you take a self-serve laundromat that's unattended yep. and you add an attendant on staff, and I, let's not talk about wash, dry, fold for a minute, just being attended versus unattended. And that person is well-trained and they're well-coached and it, it's, uh, they keep the store clean and customer service is important to them. Mm-hmm. With all those caveats in place, usually over about a 12 to 18 month period of time, you can expect your self-serve revenue to grow enough to overcome the cost of the labor of having an attendant on duty. Now, those are very general rules of thumb. Um, there's a lot of people that do that for six months and they go, Oh, I'm yeah, losing, losing $3,000 a month. And they don't, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. Hmm. Um, and, but, but yeah, to answer your question, a lot of times the self-serve revenue alone, because what happens is even in a laundromat environment, there's this big misconception in the laundromat industry that, uh, the only people who use laundromats are poor people and poor people don't have any money. Well, both of those are not true. They have less money and they have to be more diligent with what they do with it. But about 50% of our customers are middle class to upper middle class. They're using our laundromat for different reasons. Now, they don't use it every week. They have a washer and dryer at home. A quick example of that would be their dryer breaks. They have four kids at home. You know, every day that goes by, you got six outfits, if not more, uh, that are getting dirty that weren't dirty yesterday. And we all know how laundry piles up. And those middle class and upper middle class families, they'll very quickly take that laundry, bring it up to the local laundromat and, uh, and run it through all your machines just to keep from getting behind. So the point is that there's a lot of different revenue streams within a laundromat business that a lot of people don't take into consideration. When you calculate all these things and you associate them with what I call a higher value proposition, so you're providing a higher level of customer mm-hmm. service, for example, a nicer facility, et cetera, et cetera, people will pay more for that. That's okay. what it boils down to. Is, is cash management an issue at all? Like, do you take a lot of cash? Is cash security um, a problem or is it, you know, more transition to credit cards? It's not not as much a thing. I mean, a lot of times I think, you know, some laundromats are in maybe undesirable locations and that could seem mm-hmm. like they're a little more dangerous um, for, for you as the owner or a trusted employee to, to kind of go in and, and pulling out a bunch of cash from the place. So any, mm-hmm. any thoughts on that? Yeah, there's still most, I would argue most laundromats in the country still operate on cash. Now, they don't necessarily all operate on coins. A lot of them operate on like a value card system. Kind of like if you go, I don't know if you have like Dave and Buster's mm-hmm. yeah. video game places, you go in and give them a hundred bucks, they put a hundred bucks on a card and then you swipe the card to play the games. It's kind of the same type of concept within a laundromat business. It's still cash-based, but people aren't just out in the open using cash. They're just putting value on a, what they call a VTM, a value transfer machine. In that case, the laundromat owner can typically collect the cash from the VTM, which is usually behind a wall or in an office or something like that, put it in a cooler or a subtle bag or something that doesn't look like a money bag. Uh, Nobody really knows they're collecting. A lot of times people don't even know they're the owner and they just kind of very subtly walk out and nobody knows that they even have the money. 
Now, in a coin-based laundromat, obviously the owner has to come in and physically collect every machine and everyone in the world knows that they're collecting and they know that they're going to put those quarters or dollar coins back into the machine, which means they're going to take the cash out. And that means when they walk out of the store, they have a bag of cash with them. It's kind of hard to hide those things. Uh, But you mentioned something that's really important. This is just my opinion, but most locations in the country it's just not a big deal if you have a little bit of self-awareness and uh, and you're not you're not just silly <laughs> with uh, kind of flaunting it and you're just kind of subtle and don't make a big deal out of it. There's definitely some locations um, in the country where security is definitely more of an issue and you have to be more cautious of those things. So it just kind of depends on your business model. That being said, our industry right now is, uh, I always say we're kind of 20 years behind the time with technology. So we're right now just starting to have kind of a technological revolution in our industry. So credit card payment systems, phone pay apps, things like that are just now hitting our industry. Well, let me rephrase that. They hit our industry about seven or eight years ago. They're really kind of full steam ahead at this point where most people are like, are you serious? Like we've taken credit cards for 25 years. Uh, So it's a, it's a, it's an evolution. It's a process, but it's also a, it's a tremendous investment. So it's not just that laundromat owners aren't smart enough. It's, you know, when you have 80 or 90 washers and dryers in a store, I mean, to put a credit card reader on every machine is a five to $700 investment per machine. Yeah. So you do the math, that's 50, 60, $70,000 in a lot of cases just to accept credit cards yeah. on the machines, not collect cash. And then you have to turn around and pay a 3% credit card transaction yeah. fee. So and then is that going to increase your sales enough right, to, to justify right. the incremental exactly. cost is probably, it's probably no, right? Uh, it depends on the situation. There's plenty of them where it's justified. Absolutely. But there's plenty where it's not as well. What's the, what's the biggest challenge you face in your business? Um. It's a great question. Is it scalability? Like, is it hard to scale? Like if you want to say, hey, I want to double. Well, does that become harder because you geographically have to sp- spread out more? Because like you don't want to, you know, cannibalize. It's easier. Yeah, it's easier now than it used to be. Um, I mean, if I answer that question for just the average laundromat owner, scalability is definitely still a problem. Um, a lot of people are attracted to this industry because it's a very simple cash-based business, as you mentioned. And a lot of people that don't have the highest business acumen are attracted, but want to own a business, they're attracted to this business because it is a really good starter business. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's part of the benefit of, of being a great industry is it's a great place to kind of get your feet wet and learn how to yeah. be a business owner. And that's great. The problem with that is a lot of people that are attracted to the industry don't have a high level business acumen. They don't have a lot of education. And so they're kind of learning on a fly. And I always say a lot of times, watermat owners tend to have more of a consumer mentality than a business owner mentality. So they struggle with raising their prices and and some very Mm. fundamental basic things that a business has to do to thrive and be successful. And for that reason, a lot of laundromat owners aren't thriving. Okay. What about, is is employee management at all? I mean, 40 employees are a lot of them part-time or is it a lot of full-time people? Is that that a a challenge? Of our stuff, um, I think it depends on the person. It certainly has been a challenge for me to grow our staff to where it is now. It's not a big deal to manage it now because I've invested heavily in a pretty amazing team. Um, I've built a team of people that are all very high character people. Um, Integrity is important to me. I can teach you a lot of things, but I can't teach you integrity. You either have it or you don't. Um, And I've been very intentional about that. And sometimes that's kind of a long road to pave, 
so to speak. But uh, but it's a I'm a firm believer in that. So I think it really just depends on how good your people management skills are. Once again, a lot of people in the automotive industry, that's not necessarily their strong suit. A lot of people are also attracted to this industry because they tend to be more mechanically inclined. And they're like, oh, I can fix my own washers, fix my own dryers, toilet breaks. I can replace that door door needs a new jam. I can put that in. And, and those are all true statements and that can be very valuable and it can save you some money and, and uh, things like that. But the problem is a lot of times, and this is, these are just generalizations, but a lot of times people that are extremely mechanically inclined typically don't have the best people skills. Mm. Well, managing people, creating a culture, creating a scalable business model that's repeatable, um, it's an art too. Like that's a skill. And for whatever reason, our industry doesn't seem to value that as much as a lot of industries. But I think if you and I are also honest with each other, like society in general, customer service is kind of a lost art. <laughs> Certainly not yeah. what it used to be. So to answer your question, our, one of our biggest strengths is I'm a people person. And, uh, and I don't claim to be perfect there or anything, but I care about people and I'm genuine and sincere. And I have pretty good communication skills. And if you get to know me, like as long as you do what you're supposed to do, you're going to love me. Now, if you don't, you're not going to like me at all. Um, but that's a, you know, I'm not the best, I'm not the most mechanically inclined. I'm not great at fixing equipment. And I've never tried to be. Um, so I just kind of, you know, angle to my strengths and in a lot of laundromat businesses, because they have that commodity mindset, hmm. they're focused on, you know, saving 300 bucks by fixing their own equipment. And I'm focused on investing $300 in my next manager. So I don't have to work in my store anymore. Yep. So that's why I kind of in the beginning of our conversation, I mentioned that the business is not passive, but I'm a passive owner. It's because for 12 years, I've invested in multiple locations, vertical integration, and I built just an absolutely rock star team. Um, and we've invested heavily in that. That did not happen by accident. And not too many people in our industry, that's their, that's usually not their skill set. So a lot mm. of people kind of look at me and like, wow, how did you do that? Because they're like, 20 years in, they're still working a hundred hours a week in their laundromat, fixing their washers and dryers. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're, I mean, you're focused on, there's a great book, Who Not How. Um, I don't know if you've mm -hmm. read it. But, Absolutely. You know, it, it talks about, you know, the, the who and for you, yeah, that's, you're, you're not going to fix, how am I going to fix this dryer? You're going to find that the who is going to run the business and, and take care of that's all right. stuff. And, and it allows you to be, you know, the, the, the visionary, you're going to focus then on, on the bigger things. Uh, you know, one of them, which is, you know, you, you have this book, you've launched a laundromat millionaire. I think it comes out in a couple months. Uh, you mentioned what, uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Like if, you know, what's, uh, I, I buy it, I read it. What, what, what can I expect to learn from it? Yeah, the funny thing about the book is the title, Laundromat Millionaire, tends to be like this very uh, braggadocious, like in your face, kind of like this guy thinks he's the greatest thing ever, right? I mean, let's be honest, I'm aware of that. It is yep. what it is. The funny thing is, uh, where it came from, as you mentioned, the Bigger Pockets episode, uh, I totally stumbled into that. I mean, I knew who Bigger Pockets was, but I had no idea how big they were. And they kind of caught on to my story, reached out to me, asked me to come on their show. And I was like, Sure, I'll, I'll, you know, if I can help a person, I'll, I'll tell my story and help them. And uh, you mentioned messaging me. Um, I got hundreds of those a day for oh, wow. months, and a year and a half, two years later, I still get messages from that podcast. One, that's how big their audience is. But the flip side of that is that was the beginning of Laundromat Millionaire, because that was when I realized that I had done something that not a lot of people in my industry had done. And I never saw myself as really that special. I mean, I don't have an NBA. I'm not that smart of a guy, just some good old fashioned grit. And, uh, and that's where kind of the subtitle of the book, mm. the grit to elevate an industry came from. 
And so I told that story and I had already written the book six or seven times. Uh, well, let me rephrase that five in or six head, times in your head. Um, no, I literally had written oh, really? it several okay. times. I just hadn't published it. Okay. And every time I rewrote the book, I wrote it from a different angle because I, it was the same story, but you can leave this out and put this in, leave this out mm. and put this in. And it was always like, my wife was always telling me, she was like, I think you should write the book. I think you have a message the world needs to hear, but what's the message? Like you need to know what the message is and make the, the book around, surround the message. And um, basically what happened is around, uh, well, probably a year or two before that podcast, me and my wife were updating our personal financial statement. And as I mentioned, we, we didn't really have any money, you know, 12 years ago. Um, and we updated it. And all of a sudden one day I looked at her and I was like, do you realize we're millionaires? She was like, what do you mean? here's our PFS. Like we're millionaires, you know, 12 years ago, or well, at that point, eight years ago, um, our net worth was probably less than $50,000. Well, the point is I'm telling this story on bigger pockets. And as I'm telling this story, um, I have just hundreds and hundreds of people reach out to me after the show. And one of them sends me a message. Hey, my name is so-and-so I'm from so-and-so you're that laundromat millionaire guy. Right. And I was just like, huh? Did he just yeah. call me a laundromat millionaire? And at the time, I already had this book written many times. And it was like an aha moment for me when I realized mm-hmm. that's a moniker, that's a tagline that I can run with to get people's attention. Yep. So my point is this, that's where the title of the book and the inspiration came from. But the book has been rewritten seven times and the final rendition was written in a very um, non-laundromat specific way. So I believe that 90% of business is transferable from industry to industry. And so the product is laundromats, but that's really not important, right? The fact that it's a laundromat. Now, if you want to own a laundromat, the other 10% will apply to you too. I wrote the book, I call it a teaching memoir because I wrote it in a way of, yes, it's a memoir, it's my life story, but I also wrote it in a very practical, actionable way to teach any entrepreneur or business owner in any industry, no matter how big or small, this is the, these are the keys to success because I have a lot of friends that are business owners in other industries. And the fact of the matter is almost all of them, some of them overwhelmingly helped me be successful in laundromats, even though they don't know anything about laundromats. And they did that because almost all those skills and attributes are transferable. So what makes you successful in your industry? What makes me successful in my industry? there's a correlation of 70 to 90% of that. Yep. And then that last 10% of what's the product, like a mechanic or a laundromat, that's really not all that relevant. It's pretty insignificant for the most part. So my point is that I wrote the book in that way because I really want to bring the actionable life lessons to the world, not just people that would want to own a laundromat. Oh, that, well, that's awesome. Well, I look forward to coming out and I, yeah, you had a lot of great points there. I think hundred uh, percent, I agree. I, I always try to learn from others and, you know, at the end of the day, it's, we're, we're taking all the information, it's systems, process people, you know, financials, cash flow, and it, it all applies, right? Right. Whether it's a widget an online business, service business, doesn't matter. So right. that's awesome. Any other books you're reading that you, that you've enjoyed that you'd, you'd recommend? Business books, uh, just, just finish a book and I tend to be obsessive. So if I read a book and really like it, I'll read it again immediately. I just read it three times in a row. Uh, it's called a hundred million offers. I think it's like actually a hundred capital M offers. Okay. Uh, it's written by a guy named Alex Hermosi, uh, who has a small, but very quickly growing YouTube channel. And, uh, I'm a big, big fan. I mean, I, I never want to stop learning. I never have stopped learning, but a friend of a friend, 
turned me on to his YouTube channel. And he's a very successful guy in many different industries, started out as kind of a gym owner. That was his niche. Hmm. Um, but but the guy is super sharp. His YouTube channel is fantastic, but his book is amazing. Okay. Um, so that's one cool. I would recommend. I got a ton of value out of that. Awesome. And where can uh, where can listeners connect to learn more about you, uh, get updates when the book comes out, all that stuff? Yeah, well, if they want to purchase the book right now, it's in pre-sale. They can go to my website, which is laundromatmillionaire.com. And I always say that's laundromat with an O, not mm-hmm. a Y, um, millionaire.com. They can pre-order the book there. All pre-ordered copies are shipped out immediately now, and they're all autographed by me. So they can get that there right now if they want. Um, as of June, 2022, uh, the book will be, we have a publisher. So the book will be everywhere. The books are sold audiobooks, eBooks, uh, the whole, the whole nine yards, bookstores, airports, the whole thing. Uh, but yeah, the best way to reach out to me is just through my website, laundromatmillionaire.com. We have a lot of different things going on that are just trying to help people find what I call the best version of themselves. So I'd, I'd love to interact with them. Cool. Thanks for, for coming on and sharing all your knowledge and, and wisdom. And, you know, I got a ton of great notes here. I think, um, you know, you've, you've done a great job and I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Brian. I appreciate the time. I hope that you enjoyed listening to this episode of Business with Beers. My goal with every episode is to help inspire you to reach new levels of success in your own business and life. So start taking action today. And in order to help this podcast reach more people, please rate, review, and share. To connect with me on Instagram and Twitter, check out the links in the show notes. And until next time, have a great day.